Life's too short for crap marketing. The Got Marketing Podcast is for marketers, business owners, and entrepreneurs who want marketing that's fun, accessible, and meaningful. Join me, Mia Feilman, for inspired chats with my favorite marketing insiders about marketing that works, campaigns that inspire, and the fads, fakery, and false profits to avoid. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Gut Marketing Show. I'm your host, Mia. In today's episode, we are going to tackle the big question. Is the grass greener, in-house marketer or entrepreneur? My guest has made the move from CMO, Chief Marketing Officer, to Startup Founder. Kian Tracy is a new business friend, but I absolutely loved her at Hello. Welcome onto the show, matey. Thank you so much for having me, Mia. It is such a pleasure. We connected recently through this incredible women's networking community called One Roof and um, Sparks Flew. Well, they did at least for me. Oh, absolutely. Straight away. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. All right. So I'd love to hear your story about how you made that transition from chief marketing officer to entrepreneur. Dish, dish it all. Yeah, it was never really meant to be that way, I don't think, in my head. I'm a career marketer. I was still at uni and I already had a marketing role. And then the time came that it was the the right time to move on from my big corporate marketing position. And I decided to take some time to rest and, and look for the next big thing because I loved my job. Like I loved my job. And so the pressure to find a job that I would love equally was just mammoth. It was a mammoth task. And I decided to do some freelancing. And before I knew it, I was doing the best work I'd ever done, had the most flexibility that I ever had. I was earning more money than I'd ever earned. I was being so impactful for the businesses that I was working with. And I could see tangible change and growth. And I thought, wow, this is maybe where I was meant to be. And I was working as a boutique marketing agency, a marketing consultant, uh, and I had a few clients wanting to talk about sustainability. And I thought, okay, cool, this is a really interesting space to be in. And I did some research and I came back to my clients and I said, I think we've got to be really careful talking about sustainability because it is fraught with danger. It's a confusing space as it is. And unless you're absolutely certain of what you're talking about and the extent of what you're talking about, it's a pretty risky thing to do. So why don't we start with just getting our story on paper before we start marketing it? And client reluctantly agreed and said, yeah, but where am I going to put this information? How do I tell the world that we've made this progress. And I immediately said, well, there must be a comparison site or some website out there that lists all of these credentials so we can go and find them. And I Googled for a few minutes and I thought, Jesus, I don't think this exists, but it probably should. And I, within a few minutes, was on godaddy.com and I found a really cracking domain name and put my credit card down on the spot and I said, giddy up, I think this is what I was meant to do with my life. And that happened in the space of, I don't know, 90 seconds and everything evolved very quickly. So before I knew it, I was sitting down writing a brand strategy for myself, which was the first time I'd ever done that, being a career marketer and a brand consultant by trade. That's work that I did a lot of. So I sat down for a couple of months and started putting pen to paper about, you know, who are we going to be? And here we are. And sustainablechoice.com.org? Yep. 
www.com.org.au. I've got them all. You've got them all? <laughs> Love them. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. There is so much to unpack with what you just said. So first, take us back to CMO. Who were you working for and why did you love that job so much? I was at Vocus Group in the retail division with Dodo and iPrimus. So I headed up the marketing department for consumer, which was Dodo and iPrimus at the time. I loved the business. I loved the people that I worked with. I loved the work that I did. I was very, very fortunate to work with some incredible minds. I was fortunate to travel a lot. I got to see some awesome parts of the world. Had an entire team in Melbourne and an entire team in the Philippines. And that was an absolute joy to to lead and to work with. So I, I loved it. I just couldn't even put my finger on exactly what it was. It was just every day going to work was challenging. It wasn't always easy. And and I wouldn't say every day was amazing, but I really loved it and it felt very purposeful to me. So once you take the next step and you start looking at what's available and recruiters start ringing you and telling you what's out there and you think, gosh, is that something that I could sell? Is that something I want to be associated with? And I think that as a marketer, regardless of what anybody says, you're selling a product. And if you don't believe in that product or if you can't get behind it, then that's the hardest job on earth. So the opportunities that I was offered and some really, you know, great organisations that, you know, retirement villages, there was heaps of money in that. I just thought, I just don't know that that's what I want to be selling right now in my career. Totally. I say this all the time, but marketing is not the business of polishing a turd. You know, we can't shine shit. It's about advocating on behalf of a product or a service or a brand that we're really invested in. Yeah, I agree. Marketers are brand custodians. That's, that's what we do. They become our babies. Absolutely. And I think you get to a point in your career where if somebody asks you to polish said turd, you've got a couple of choices. You can say, no, I'm going to do it the right way, or you walk away. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great luxury that I still have to this day is that I don't have to work with or for anyone or any product that I can't get behind. I don't have to love the product, but I do have to believe that what I am saying is true to the product and true to the audience. That's really important to me. And there's lots of things that I could sell that I would never use, but if I believe that it's right for the person we're talking to, then that's okay. Absolutely. It's very admirable. And it's such a good point that like, It's not about you personally needing to use the product. It's about you knowing that there's a market out there that is going to love this product, even if it's not you. Exactly. But, you know, that real turd polishing where you're like, this is fundamentally flawed. This is not good. No one is going to enjoy this. And it's now my job to try to, you know, flog something that no one is going to want. It's very soul crushing as a marketer. It is. And particularly when You work in an organisation where the role is intended to find ways to, I guess, dupe people that are weak. And I won't specify, but there was a job opportunity in an industry that I couldn't get behind because the idea is how do we squeeze more and more money out of the vulnerable? And I just, again, an opportunity where I could have earned a lot of money. But the idea of being responsible for building clever, targeted messaging and automation to try and squeeze money out of people who are vulnerable was just something that I couldn't stomach. And I think I'll be forever grateful that I made that choice. Yeah. I used to be the assistant brand manager for Vegemite and uh, peanut butter was also in my portfolio. So assistant brand manager spreads. And I loved that job. I was like, this is awesome. I'm working on Australia's most iconic brand. And then there was one day that I went into a meeting and there was someone there who 
his whole shtick was about removing the peanuts from peanut butter and replacing it with some sort of peanut butter filler, some sort of synthetic, you know, maltodextrin thickener, you know, emulsifier rubbish that was a fraction of the cost of a peanut to try to drive the profitability of that spread up. And I'm just like, I can't get behind this. And that was the beginning of the decline of working with craft. I was just like, I don't know. I don't think I can do this. No. It's funny, isn't it, how you become so connected? And I think that's admirable, to be honest. I mean, when I was at Dodo, we described it as our bird. I said my bird, you know, and and you feel that way, right? You absolutely feel that way. And, you know, and some, particularly when, when businesses choose to change and, you know, Dodo was going through a transition and I couldn't get behind it, but not because I didn't believe in the choices they were making. It was just, you know, it was so disconnected from what I'd always known. Mm-hmm. So it actually felt okay to say, you know what, let somebody else take this on. And, you know, it's hard to watch something change. People are terrified of change, whether it's good, bad or indifferent, it doesn't matter. Mm. When you're passionate about a brand because you you think it's your own and you think nobody will ever love it like you do and you think you'll love it for the rest of your life when you're in it, um, but you do learn that it's actually okay to, to say that was a great time in my life and move on. Although I do think that Vegemite is talk about iconic. I mean, Dodo's an iconic brand, but Vegemite, that's a that's another level of icon. Yeah. I was just an assistant brand manager. I just ran AC Nilsson reports day in, day out. That's pretty much all you do as an ABM. Haven't we all? <laughs> all right. So then you started consulting. And this is really interesting. I really want to talk about this because there is a lot of marketers that now listen to this podcast, in-house marketers who are millennial women like me and you, who are working 50, 60, 70 hours a week in a corporate job, big commute, you know, childcare is expensive and are thinking of making the plunge from, you know, in-house corporate role to starting a business and consulting is a really nice jumping off point. So I'd be really curious to know what did you do for these clients Like, what did that look like? What were some of the things that they needed the most? So the first thing I would say is when I embarked on building my own agency, it was not my intention. And there's a bit of a saying in our industry where they would say, oh, she went out on her own. Um, (laughs) I did not go out on my own. It was never my intention to go out on my own. And had I intended to do that, things may have gone differently because you have a different mindset when you're like, okay, I'm going to go and start consulting because it's not as easy as it may seem, I made myself available to a few people. I made a few phone calls and I said, I have an idea. I'm going to take some time off from a big corporate job, but I will get bored. So I was thinking about doing some part-time CMO work. How about a business that can't afford a full-time CMO, but could utilize one for a day or two for strategy, for hiring people, for making sure that everything's reported correctly, but you can't afford somebody on a full-time salary? And my friend said to me, I don't know, let me have a think about it. And then the next day he called me and he said, hey, I've got somebody I want you to meet. And that person that I met was a game changer for me because it was my biggest client at the time, has been with me for five years. And again, most importantly, it was the most and still is the most impactful work I've ever done in my career. So that happened organically and that is not something that I set out to do and I think that makes it a little bit easier. Seeing I didn't have expectations and nor did they necessarily. 
what did I do for them? I figured out my niche really quickly. I was very fortunate because if I had said I'm going to go out and do this on my own, I don't know what I would have thought I was going to do. But I started building out brand strategies and um, I had done a couple with some external agencies while I was at Bocas Group and I'd learned a hell of a lot and I knew what contributions I could make. But I also knew that doing that kind of work can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I thought, what if I could create a little bit of an in-betweening that's nowhere near that expensive, but you get more than most businesses can do in-house on their own. And so I sat down and the ones that are the most effective are the ones that gave me time to do it properly. And I would sit down with businesses who are in a big hurry to transition. They want to grow, they want to change. And I say, give me three months. Give me three months to interview every single person in this business and really identify who you are and where you're going. Let me write you a 40 or 50 page strategy and then let me implement it for you. And it is so scary. Everybody is terrified when I show them the roadmap. Everybody is terrified when I show them the time, the price and what they're going to get for it because they can't visualise what they're going to get at the end of this. But I also have a rule. If somebody says, hey, can you write me some content or can you build me a campaign? If there is no brand strategy in place, I will refuse the work because I can't do it properly if we don't know who we are, who we're talking to and what we're telling them. It's just, for me, it's impossible to do it properly, to do it as, to do a service for somebody and to do it in good conscience, knowing that we can get an outcome. It's very, very hard to get an outcome when you don't have a brand strategy because I think of it like, like bumper bowling. Like a brand strategy is the bumper bowling and everybody's flinging balls in different directions. But your laser focus is those pins on the end. And as long as you have these guidelines that you know how to stay within, you can get to the other end. And I am very, very strict with my clients. And sometimes I'll say I'm pretty tough on them. But if we don't have a laser focus, we will sit in a room for three days if we have to, to agree as a leadership team or as an organization on what that laser focus is, because when somebody runs into me and says, oh, I've got an idea, let's do an ad campaign that does this. I said, well, is that getting us to that particular goal? Are we trying to make quick sales? Are we trying to grow brand awareness? Are we trying to convince people of something that they didn't know? Like, let's be very clear on what we're trying to do. So my work as a consultant has been very much around building out a brand strategy and then making sure that the business is equipped to implement it. And that's where my agency started growing a little bit with creative teams, etc. because I was one of the worst things that you'll do. And every brand strategist will tell you is that you hand somebody an incredible document that is perfect for them. And then you hand it over and they can't afford you anymore and they can't use it. Mm. And that's the worst, right? So there has to be a happy medium. And that's why I always initially I'll give a quote for if at the end of this we do any one of these 10 things, here's approximately how much you'll pay for it. None of that money goes to me. I'm not a web developer. I'm not a TV network. I'm not YouTube. I'm not on Facebook. All of these dollars are how you use my work. And I also say if you don't have the money to do these things, maybe have a think about whether this is the right work we should be doing right now for you. Mm. Because, you know, it's all about implementation at the end. Totally. I love that analogy. That is so good. Gut Marketing is brought to you by Campaign Del Mar, a marketing education platform for marketers and entrepreneurs. Learn practical, repeatable and actionable steps to market with confidence. 
nail your email marketing strategy, or join Campaign Classroom and learn to create memorable and effective marketing campaigns. These are not the kind of online programs where you are left floundering, unsure how to put theory into practice, nor will these programs sit unfinished for months. You can expect hands-on, tailored advice accountability and a supportive community and you will walk away with lifelong marketing skills. Learn more at campaigndelmar.com. When you say have a laser focus, I'm sure people are listening going, yeah, I have a laser focus. It's to make more money. It's to grow my brand. Can you give some examples of a really noble laser focus for a brand? In this context, this is not about vision and values and purpose or anything like that. This is about what is the key component to growing our business commercially. And it's not always the same thing. I'll give you an example of, you know, if you're an e-com brand, then generally your laser focus is about how do we get traffic and convert traffic, right? But if you're an FMCG brand, you're an impulse purchase, you're a commodity purchase, there is absolutely no need in trying to uh, work on these conversion tactics online, particularly. All you're trying to do is have top of mind brand awareness. So when somebody's walking down that aisle, they say, I know this brand, I know this product, I've been meaning to try it. So when I say laser focus, when I talk to people about, hey, let's grow brand awareness, let's make sure they know who we are and what we make, then that's all that matters. And so when they say, hey, let's do a sale that says let's do X percent off and let's change our TV commercials to do this sale, I say, okay, sure, but our laser focus is to tell them who I am and what I make? And is that right for where we're going? And if we spend three months off track, are we losing And nine times out of 10? Managing directors, the CMOs, whoever they are in the business will turn around and say, yep, you're right, let's stay on track. Because we all agreed on this three months ago, exactly what we were trying to achieve here. And it makes such a huge difference. I had a client uh, in the sporting space and I said to him, I need to know what the laser focus is here. Are we trying to grow an audience to get sponsors or are we trying to sell tickets? And he's like, why does it matter? Can we do both? Mm. And I said, absolutely not. (laughs) Right now, we have a very limited budget. Mm. So either we're trying to make money from the few people that will pay for a ticket or we get them all in for free. We do everything we can to grow audience. And then we go knock on the sponsor stores and say, hey, this is the size of my audience. That's the example of these two different, these conflicting laser focuses. And that was actually a really challenging one. We didn't really resolve that, to be honest, because that was one of those circumstances where the owner just couldn't understand why I would restrict him. And, and I get that, by the way. Like entrepreneurs, we're all mad. So we're like, no, I want it all and I want it now. And I didn't end up working on that project because I really needed to know one way or another, what are we trying to do here? Yeah. And that's why I'm so strict. Yeah. I say all the time that strategy is about making choices. And what you just said to me sounds like it's what are we deciding to bet on? What are we betting on is going to grow our business and make sales, but we can't do everything. So where are we choosing to focus on? So I really, really love that. And it's scary because I have to advise somebody 
to focus on something that may not be right, which is, again, it's never my job to tell them what the focus is. Mm. That's why I spend weeks interviewing every person in the business, people that used to work in the business, customers, I'll, anyone that will talk to me. That's a big, big part of what I do to build a brand strategy. And if there's any marketers listening that are trying to figure out what the first thing is that they should do, you write a bunch of questions and you go and ask everyone in the business. And when I present back three months later a 40-page document about who that brand is, the first thing I say to them is, I did not decide any of this. All I have done is taken all of your words and all of your thoughts and all of your plans and put them in order mm. and made them make sense and I'm presenting your ideas back to you because they are, all of this already lives in the business unless you're doing a transition. That's a different conversation. So I think having that laser focus and being very, very clear on it and understanding the strategy, it actually makes your job easier in the end, to be quite honest. Totally. It would also change as well if you are a new business in a new space like technology. So how long did it take to write your brand strategy for Sustainable Choice? Great question. It took me a little under three months, so maybe two and a half months. I can tell you now that if I brought that 40, 50-page deck out now, there's only a couple of slides in there that no longer apply. There's a couple of slides where I said that I felt that our target audience was supermarket brands and supermarket shoppers and the reality is it's so much broader than that but I had a really clear idea of like what we're trying to achieve and I think the cool thing is is that I knew that how we get there what the product itself is going to be I wasn't worried so much about what what am I trying to do right now what am I building also I have the most incredible developers that I trust with my life and I knew there was no point in telling them what they were building because they were going to work with me to tell me what they're building. But I knew what I wanted to do was build a technology that radically affects sustainable change in mass market consumption. That's what I wanted to do. I didn't know how I was going to do it. And to be quite honest with you, I'm still not 100% sure what thing we build will have that impact because we're building lots of different things with that in mind. But we knew, we knew what we were trying to do. We were trying to make the world see that, that mass market consumption is not going anywhere and fighting against it is not the answer, but creating a healthy conversation and allowing businesses to have a voice about what they're doing, what's good, what's bad, what's hard, why it's hard, being honest about the reason that you still want the same quality and the same price and the same availability of product but you also want it to be entirely sustainable, which let's be honest, that term itself is actually a really challenge, like entirely sustainable, good luck. So I wanted to be different to people that are in this space as well. So people in this space are often advocates, they're environmentalists, they are trying to push back and fight against big businesses, which power to them, and I have no issue with that. And I think, you know, you go fight for what you believe in, but my approach is really different. It's a commercial approach. I understand that what you're trying to achieve here and that you want to keep your business going. You also want to keep however many people, whether it's one or 1,000 or 100,000 people employed, and you want to make sure that those people can still feed their families and you want to make sure that your customers can still buy your products if they want to. So I looked at this from a different lens. I looked at this from the lens of the people in the businesses 
and the businesses themselves and what they're trying to do and what impact it would have if you suddenly didn't exist anymore. And that's not necessarily the answer, you know, and unfortunately just fighting against it wasn't going to work. So I decided to build out a strategy for something that was going to work harmoniously with the businesses over time to help them and we think that we help businesses to communicate their messaging in a way that is not putting it in their marketing because that's obviously that's quite risky but giving them a, a safe space to publish their credentials also what we hope for is a bit of healthy competition within our platform so that you know if they're all trying to outdo each other in their environmental impact that's amazing what a win but also giving consumers better access to that information and to a certain extent, democratising the data. And it's a very long, long, slow process and we are not there yet, but we have a very, very clear idea on who we are. And also in that document, we had our brand values and how we treat our customers and what we need to do for success. And every single thing on that, I think this morning I would have quoted our brand, three of our, our five brand values in conversations this morning before I got here because I said something and I said, oh, actually, that's not me being impartial. I take it back. Or actually, let's do that because it's genuinely the right thing to do. And we live and breathe those values. And you can't live and breathe values if you Google what are good brand values and then you write trust and integrity and, you know, so I think getting that right, and and that's a part of what I insist on doing as a part of a brand strategy, unless they have it, which is great, but being able to live and die by the words on the wall, I think is absolutely imperative to staying on track and on brand. I think it's a really clever solution that you've created because greenwashing is a real thing and it's awful. I have no appetite for it at all. But that doesn't mean that we can't celebrate steps along the way that brands are taking, meaningful steps. There is no perfect solution. Unless you're a climate scientist, You are. there is no perfect solution to sustainability. And like you said, you know, I want to go into Woolworths and I want to pick up a product off the shelf, you know, and um, it would be good to know what steps they have taken without them having to overstate it and without having to mislead anyone. And so I think it's a really, really clever way of saying, hey, this is where, this is the platform where we can share the steps, we can share the milestones without going out with a marketing campaign that's, you know, completely tone deaf. I think that the, that's such an important point and one that not everybody agrees with me on, by the way, and I'm, I'm okay with it, that greenwashing is, is so much more prominent when you are using it as a competitive advantage in a in a space where your consumer is not given the time and opportunity to make a choice. So if you put it on a label, that is the scariest space because you've got milliseconds for somebody to walk down an aisle and go, oh, well, that one's organic. I'll buy that. Mom, now I'm doing the right thing by the planet. So you've given yourself an unfair advantage where it may or may not actually be a good choice. So in that case, I think it's fraught with danger and needs to be tread really carefully. The other side of that, and a side that still gets accused of greenwashing, and I fight vehemently against this, is when a business publishes the work that they've done, the steps that they've taken, what they've achieved, 
And there's a difference between putting something on a label and publishing an article on LinkedIn about something that you've done. And when I see it all the time, people hashtag greenwashing, these guys have said that they've planted this or they've put up these, you know, this wind farm and that's not enough. No, it's not enough, but it has been done. And allow them, allow them because if we don't allow businesses to talk about the steps that they are taking, we are A, shutting down the conversation and B, we are excusing them from the conversation. Mm. When they are not allowed to say, hey, this is what I have done, they sit in silence. But the reality is that there's so little knowledge around this right now that everybody's doing the best that they can. I think when you see people screaming about, oh, how dare they say that they've built wind farms when there's still this much plastic in the ocean, I think there's a lot of people that are involved in that. Firstly, there's we're consumers and we are still the ones that are allowing that plastic bottle to land in the ocean at the end of the day. But also, you know, we still turn the lights on. So when everybody's aggressive about power companies, I think, well, are you going to sit in the dark? You have to be willing to sit in the dark because we're not ready yet. So what we need to do is encourage conversation, Mm -hmm. transparency, education, I'm no expert. Let me tell you, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to figure out how we can educate people like me. And I haven't I haven't cracked the code yet. It is very, very hard. There's a special place in hell for keyboard warriors. And often I will say in defense of society that it's often a very loud minority. It's not the majority. There's quite a few people that can use critical thinking and say, building a wind farm is awesome. Let's give them a pat on the back for that. But then unfortunately, like with everything, there's always going to be those people that are just the the squeaky wheels that get the most oil. So I would love to understand how you went about starting a purpose-led, essentially marketing technology brand. Like me, presumably, managing teams, you had a copywriter and you had a social media manager and you probably had a publicist at Dodo doing all these things for you. What did you do first, second, and third as a bootstrapped startup founder? It's absolutely unequivocally the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I often say that I'm glad I didn't know because if I had known, I I may have been too scared to start. The first thing I did was what I know best. I wrote a strategy and a brief and I took a brief to designers and developers and I said, here's the brief. This is what I want the brand to look like. This is how I want it to feel. This is what the technology should do. And so that part was like silk. You know, I've worked with my developers before. I knew exactly what I was trying to do there. And then I had to commercialize the business. And the day came when I was like, I am ready to go out there and do this. And I'm going to start by hiring a salesperson. And we were in lockdown and I was still running my agency. So we had this one full-time, very senior, very experienced salesperson get hit the phones and just start dialing to see what she could do. And I must say a lot of things have come naturally to me in building this business because I have had so much experience, so many people to teach me, so many people to call me out on my flaws over the years. And I think that while that can be challenging, it really awakens you to where your gaps are. But I think it was so, it felt so natural and so easy for me to do because I didn't know what I didn't know. And I still don't. And trying to navigate what I don't know and waking up sometimes and going, oh my God, no brainer, why haven't I done this? And how many of those are there? And what is everybody around me thinking right now about, have I just said something stupid 
that everybody thinks I'm crazy and I can't see it. And so that is far and away the most challenging thing. And to this day, I, I honestly don't know. And do you ever solve it? I honestly don't know. I read lots of books and listen to podcasts and I listen to audiobooks and I ask questions and we do feedback forms and you name it. And I still feel like there's just 99% of the things I need to know, I don't know them yet. So that's scary. Woman, you need to find some friends in business and you need to like make them your outsourced CEOs. That's what I do. And it's a game changer. You find two or three other women who are in the technology startup phase and you get together once a month or whenever you need and you just like, all right, I'm going to talk and I'm going to listen because we cannot be objective about our own businesses. No. We can't. We can't see the forest from the trees. The amount of times that Odette Barry and Melissa Packham have saved my behind, you have no idea. <laughs> like it's unbelievable. And they'll say something and then I'll just be like this, this cool dread just covers over me because I'm just like, they saw that so quickly and I was just completely oblivious to it. But, yeah, it will change your life if you do that. Yeah, it's interesting. I um, I think a lot about the network around me. I do I make a lot of phone calls to a lot of people that I know often and say, hey, this is where my head's at. Can you cool me down? Can you make me grumpier so I can be tougher? Can you give me some advice? The biggest question I love asking is, if you were me, honest to God, if you were me right now, what would you do? And when you get the truth of that, it's so fascinating. And often you can't do it, right? Because if you were me right now, in your imagination, you've got more money than I do or more time or more resources or something like that. Mm. And I think maybe sometimes we use that technique to sort of get people to confirm what we already believe. But hey, you know, if that's what you've got to do, that's what you've got to do. But I think one thing I've found about my network and how I, how to keep my network strong it's the people that are really active in my network are not the ones that I sought a network from. They're not the ones that I joined groups to meet. They're not the ones that I have reached out to and connected on LinkedIn and said, hey, we might be, you know, we might have some synergies, let's connect. I've tried that actively. And often the most valuable people in my network are the ones who I've done something good for them once and they don't forget that. And I learn, I see it more and more every day. I'm like, I've, I'm in lots of groups and I really try to actively be in those groups. But where my my network is, the ones that I ring every day, they're people that over the many, many years that I've bought something from them or I've helped them get a deal over the line or something like that. And so that networking thing, uh, as far as finding people that can understand you and help you is one side of it. The other side of it is just being being remembering to just be good to people and that often is like the most magical thing of all. Well that's exactly how you and I connected is I'm pulling together this panel discussion campaigns for social impact and I was looking for people who are campaign specialists but also working in the impact space and I didn't have a lot of time to pull this together and you did me an absolute solid. And you're right. I'm never going to forget it. And now it's like whatever she needs at any time of day, night, you know, I'm at the end. And that's really one of my brand values is generosity, is that I am not hiding behind a contact form on my website or you can never have my email. I literally have built this business on just being really generous with my availability and my ideas and my time. And I think that that has certainly served me extremely well. 
I think I actually didn't really notice it until, you know, thinking, preparing for what might come up in this podcast. And I thought about, you know, we're talking about networking and how do we utilise, how do we leverage our networks and activate our networks. And when I sat down to think about it, I was like, my networks, the ones that I really get the most from are not people that I network with. And I'd never really actually sat down and thought about who they are and how I created that community. You know, I'd never had purpose to sit down and say, okay, so in your community, how did they get there? And so having a moment to think about that and then putting lining everybody up that's in my head and realising that actually these are just like, you know, great relationships that I've never asked anything from them before and it's just an interesting way to, to look at it. That said, I'm all about continuing to grow networks and actively pursuing them because I'm in a few of them and more than anything, I, I love helping. I love like being able to say, oh, I, I've got an idea. But these communities of like-minded people, people that understand you, particularly when they understand you at your low points, is really very helpful. Extremely helpful. Totally. Final question, why did you choose to start a business in the sustainability space that's for profit? Well, I had never considered starting a business that was not, to be quite honest with you, because the most important thing about having a good sustainable business is having a great team, first and foremost, and I want my team to be paid fairly. I want them to love the perks that they get. I want them to be able to enjoy the flexibility and the joy of, you know, having a business that can support them. And that the best way to do that is to have a healthy, commercially viable, profitable business. And I believe deeply that we have a right to exist and to be profitable. We will provide an excellent service at an inexpensive cost to these organisations and they get a great deal of value out of us. And I feel that we'd be doing a disservice to the product if we struggled to be able to build it or if we struggled to connect with the right people. So for me, uh, building and being a female founder and trying to lead a business and looking at you, go and have a look at the statistics on who runs the unicorn startups and, and how many female-founded businesses we have in Australia alone, it's challenging, right? There are very, very few. The, the funding for female-founded businesses is nominal compared to male-founded businesses and the success rates and the likeliness of the deals being done, et cetera, et cetera. So from my perspective, I'd be doing a disservice to women in business if I didn't allow us to be a profitable and successful business. I completely agree. I think it's like we know that you need money to make real impact. And which is why we keep trying to hold these big brands to account, like the Colgates and the Crafts and the L'Oreal's of the world, because they have the money, they can create the impact. So you creating a business that's for profit, you need that money to actually make the positive change. Becoming a social enterprise or becoming a not-for-profit might hamper your goal of creating bigger environmental impact. Oh, and we've got a bunch of social enterprises and product stewards, etc. A lot of them are not for profit. And they come to us, and I thought actually initially that they would be like, oh, we don't really like this platform. We've got our own thing. 
they love it because they've never had a voice because they haven't had marketing budgets or they haven't mm. their brands haven't supported them in growth so they come to us and like yes finally a platform that's designed to help us sing mm. and that makes me so proud so if that's what we're doing if we're uplifting and supporting the social enterprises and the product stewards and the purpose driven businesses and the climate technologies and we create a safe space for them all to work cohesively and cooperatively then that's that's good enough for me totally and exactly as you said we we need female CEOs like you to be making money and topping the tops of the Forbes rich list and that's how we're going to achieve equality is by inspiring younger girls to go, yeah, you can you can create a business that creates impact without having to make it a charity or a social enterprise. It can absolutely be for profit so that you can reinvest that wherever you like, like Patagonia have. It's a for-profit company that have just given away their entire wealth. So it's up to you to do. Maybe I won't be giving away my entire wealth, but like part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's a big part of it as well, right? Make lots of money so you can do great things with it and give it back. Exactly. And put it in the hands of the right people that need it or the places that it will do good for people and planet. And so I'm entirely unafraid of doing that as well. That's exactly what I was trying to say, but you said it so much more articulately. <laughs> it's rare for me to be the more articulate one, so I'll take it. <laughs> well, it has been an enormous pleasure chatting with you. I think that this was such a great discussion. Is there anything you want to leave us with other than encouraging everyone to go and check out sustainablechoice.org.com.au.au? I would say that the key message from me, particularly about my platform, is that we need to enable more conversations. And so I think the issue of sustainable consumption, it's an issue of supply and demand. And so by having healthy conversations, we drive that demand. So focusing on positively talking about good change and trying to do better and asking questions around how can we do better, even if we are imperfect, progress is absolutely critical. And so for businesses, for marketers out there who are embarking on, okay, how do we start talking about sustainability? Get your ducks in a row, write it all down, get all your certificates together. Then once you've done that, start thinking about, okay, which of these things do we have the right to put on the pack? But first, let's put it all on paper. And yes, call on me because we've got a platform that was designed very specifically to help you do that. Gosh, you're clever. That's what I love about hosting this podcast. It's, it's literally my job to get to talk to insanely clever people all day. I love it. Sounds like a good job. I'm flattered and honoured and, and very grateful that you've had me on today too. No, it's me that's incredibly honoured. Thank you, Kian, and um, thanks for joining us on the Got Marketing Show. Thanks, Mia. Thank you. You listened right up until the end. So why not hit that subscribe button and keep the good marketing rolling? Podcast reviews are like warm hugs and they're also the best way to support a small business. You can connect with me, Mia Feilman, on Instagram or LinkedIn. And feel free to send me a message. I'm super friendly. 